Ideals as a distinction. Ideal, noun, one, a standard of perfection, beauty, or excellence. Two, one regarded as exemplifying an ideal and often taken as a model for imitation. Three, an ultimate object or aim of endeavor. Archetype, noun, one, the original pattern or model of which all things of the same type are representations or copies. Ideals as a distinction. Let's take a look at some of the things that are ideals for humans in random order. Royalty positions are ideals. Queen, king, prince, princess, etc. The Dalai Lama as a title and name change. Most tattoos represent ideals or memories of ideals. The Buddha as a title and name change. Christ incarnate, self as the archetype of the Christ ideal. Patron saints. More than 10,000 embodiments of ideals. Religious titles, priest, cardinal, bishop, the pope, etc. All military ranks and titles. Creating a possibility is creating an ideal. Any job or professional title. Any education or vocation degree or certificate. Hindu gods are ideals, 33 million of them. The Judeo-Christian god, named too sacred to speak, and many other names to describe God. Every god is an archetype of an ideal or set of ideals. New Year's resolutions. The status of being professional in sports, music, acting, etc. Every superhero and villain in books, movies, and comics. The changing of names in the moment of enlightenment, as in the Bible, Sarai becomes Sarah, Saul becomes Paul, Simon becomes Peter, Jacob becomes Israel plus similar representations in other cultures and literature. Every tribal initiation or coming-of-age celebration is a passage toward an ideal. Every feeling or notion of insufficiency is against the backdrop of a desired or expected ideal. We turn some of our memories into ideals. I'm pretty sure that every regret we have of something in the past is directly related to a broken ideal. Fear structures and phobias are ideals for some people. Everything we do and avoid doing may be concerning ideals or the exchange of ideals. As babies, we are wired to develop by emulating whatever is presented as the ideal. The same is present in all of child development, such as language, walking, bantering, socializing, everything. Obviously, humanity cannot get enough of ideals, it is pervasive in every age, class, and culture on the planet. It's being human. Your worldview is an ideal, good or bad. I was in my last year of wearing braces when I was a freshman in high school. The orthodontist office was in Dodge City, Kansas. The small town where I lived was about 55 miles directly east. My appointment in February of that year was on a school day. Although we were warned about wind gusts blowing across the snow-packed highway, Mom made a judgment call that we could get to my appointment if we left more than an hour early and drove slowly. Kansas is as flat as the movies let you imagine, and all of the roads are predictably straight and boring. There is a slight direction change about 15 miles before Dodge City, where the road turns right toward the northwest and then corrects itself westward about a half mile further. As our large 15-passenger white van entered the curve, Mom compensated to give more room for a passing tractor with a snowplow blade attached. One of the grooves left by the heavy semi-trucks in the road threw us back into our lane and directly toward the snowplow. 
We hit the snowplow at a slight angle, but the added obtuse angle of the blade pushed us into a perpendicular trajectory straight into the opposite guardrail. Our van predated federal requirements for shoulder belts and legal requirements to wear any seatbelt at all, so I don't know if we even attached our lap belts. Upon impact with the guardrail, Mom flew out the front windshield, breaking her right leg and multiple ribs and badly bruising the rest of her body. I was sitting shotgun in the passenger seat and ducked. The right side of my skull fractured when I hit the passenger door near the handle when we glanced off the snowplow, and the impact of the guardrail resulted in a lot of swelling on the back of my head that lasted for several weeks. My sister Susan was lying down in the back bench seat and ended up on the floorboard in front of the driver's seat with a badly sprained ankle. I passed out, but was choking on my tongue. Susan was aware enough to crawl over to me and reach into my mouth to dislodge my tongue so that I could breathe. Of course, I bit down hard on her fingers and nearly broke them. I think that I owe her three or four life-saving actions throughout my childhood. That was clearly one of them. The ambulance from 15 miles away took us back to the Dodge City emergency room. Fortunately, one of the best doctors in Kansas for the type of injuries that mom sustained was also there in the hospital. Because my injuries required a skilled neurologist, I was prepped for transport 150 miles away to Wesley Hospital in Wichita, Kansas. I don't remember anything about that day. Everything about this story are details that others have told me. My memory picks up again about two weeks later. The bits and pieces I remember were a gift of a tennis racket anticipating my first tennis season in high school. And I definitely remember when they pulled out my urine catheter. Mom was in the Dodge City Hospital for many days, and Dad stayed and attended to her as he could. I think that my sisters took turns to see me as well. I was released a couple weeks after the accident to go home. As I remember it, a generous individual gave us a hospital bed so that Mom could spend her time in a body cast at home. Mom's right femur shattered and required a plate and 10 screws. She was in and out of the body cast for a year and a half as she kept dislodging pins trying to get back to normal too soon. Mom almost died in the accident. There were times that she begged for death under the excruciating pain. This wasn't a perfect alternative by any stretch of the imagination, but it was an alternative that was effective to make us a very strong family and a mother that was alive and still with us. Mom learned to walk again and resumed teaching for three more years. My mind seemed fuzzy for several weeks after being released from Wesley Hospital, and the part of my brain that processed math, which I loved, took years to return. My algebra teacher spent many hours with me after school, but I think my passing grade at the end of the semester was out of mercy. My sister said that the neurologist's prognosis of the damage to my head was that if I didn't die, I would be mentally retarded the rest of my life, or whatever retarded means today in the PC culture. The good news is, is that I didn't die. And the bad news is, well, the jury's still out on that one. My family was part of an enormous community that believed in the power of prayer. You know, the stereotypical little old ladies that had their prayer lists. Well, I was on their list. And I know I was on my mom's list too. I've witnessed her suffer severely on several occasions, but she never missed a day of praying for each of her children, ever. I'm not sure that anyone remembers every detail of their life four decades ago, but in my memory, the rest of my 16th year was spotty at best. Teresa told me that after school, members of my family would ask me what I learned or remembered from the day, and it was rare that I could recall anything. My short-term memory took a beating in the accident. My brain was doing its best to rebuild neural pathways, and I worked hard on having a positive attitude. 
I needed to create as much stress-free space in my head as possible for healing. One memory is still very vivid. Enough time passed after the accident for me to get the impact of mom's injuries. All of the energy and effort that our family could muster was required to ease her pain and to help her heal. It was the evening of a chilly school day that one of my sisters informed me that the doctor found a cancerous lump on one of mom's breasts. It was dark outside and late enough that there was no traffic on our street in the town of 600 people. We lived across the high school, home of the Havilland Dragons. The K-8 building was about 100 yards to the left and a baseball field 100 yards beyond that. I don't know how many times I paced down to the end of that street and back, sobbing in confusion, frustration, anger, that my saintly mother would be afflicted with cancer. Beyond all odds, she barely survived the brutal accident, and now she's going to die of something like cancer? God, how can you let this happen? Was all I could utter through my tears over and over again. The biopsy of the lump proved to be benign, but the trauma on my soul did something, something big. I created my worldview. Yes, the refining fire of struggle and suffering brought my family closer together, but that fire also gave me my three deepest values. One, you harvest what you plant. You reap what you sow, always. That might have been my teenage Christian take on karma. Whatever you put into the world, that's what you'll get in return. I think that it is irrefutable. It's the same with what we consume physically, emotionally, spiritually, and intellectually. Garbage in, garbage out. Good in, good out. There's an illustrative verse in the New Testament of the Bible, Luke 6.45. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. 2. Be consistent. My missionary kid upbringing conflated the words integrity and morality. The word consistent was the best I could come up with to meet the definition of what I now understand as a correct meaning of integrity. Live life consistently. I didn't have to be predictable, but I had to be true to my values in a way that people around me knew that I wouldn't waver from those values. Have I been consistent all my life? Hell no. I've messed up a lot and often, but I still know who I am and what I believe. It is a standard or ideal to which I can restore when I fall or take myself out of the picture. 3. No one is immune. Be careful when you think you have it all together and when you think you are more right than others. Being humble, as in knowing who you are, being alert, and not asserting entitlement out of arrogance will save your life. The language around these values has changed and expanded, but the core worldview has remained the same for decades. And adding a practice of gratitude has made life more fulfilling and fun. So what's the lesson? You're surrounded by values and ideals. Pick one or two or three. Make them your own. Create your worldview and have something solid on which to stand. Your age doesn't matter either. I know people that are late in life and still don't know what to believe. I was 16. What I see universally is the pattern of ideals that we respond in one of three ways when we lose it or abuse it. I'm using the Genesis serpent event and the Cain and Abel story in chapters 2 through 4 as an illustration of it. But nearly every story in the world has these elements as related to an ideal. 1. You are confronted with the loss of the ideal and refuse to be responsible for self-marginalizing, such as Adam and Eve. It's her fault. It's a serpent's fault. Not only is the avoidance of responsibility evident, 
The result is identifying a community to which you are validated for marginalizing, like Adam plus Eve equals identity group of outcasts. A victim mentality is present. How do we see it today? We see it with new letters and symbols added to our gender identification chain. But this example is just one of thousands of new groups created as we marginalize ourselves from our ideal. And note that I use the word validated and not the word accepted into our target identity group. I don't see any evidence that true acceptance is essential, but validation, definitely. Two, you can do what Cain did. Cain didn't make an excuse. He flat out lied about killing his ideal represented in Abel. It's usually the manifesto of all mass murderers. Columbine High School, as an example, destroy being itself. Three, you can restore your ideal. The only practical instructions on how to do that from what I see are stated in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. You can filter out your, quote, personal God, opinion, or paradigm and apply this to your highest ideal. You have, at one time, identified yourself with your highest ideal in a way that you were the embodiment of that ideal, quote, called by my name. The mandate is to humble yourself, pray, and seek again your highest ideal. Quit doing all of the things that are distracting you, such as coping mechanisms for managing the pain of your shame. Your ideal will return to you and restore you and heal the entire context of your life. Adam and Eve could have done that, but entitlement took over. That's why I say that entitlement is a fuck-ass motherfucker and life-stealer. As much as we sugarcoat it, I promise you, entitlement will never be a source of inner happiness. There's a risk in following your ideal with all of your heart. People will want to destroy you or kill you. And it's usually the people in the second response category that want to kill their own ideal that you represent, just as Cain did to Abel and the masses did to Jesus. Notice the villain archetype of familiar stories and movies. The hero represents the ideal that once belonged to the villain, but it got lost and now the hero is the one who must be destroyed. In ordinary life, we kill the hero and the ideal dies with it, but that's not the ending that we want. We want our ideal to win and live forever. These are my favorite stories. I don't watch any other kind of movies. I still gasp with emotion at the moment of redemption, especially when even the villain comes to their senses and turns from evil to champion the good. It's the most popular story in the world. How do I know this? We spend the most money at the box office for this storyline. These movies are the most watched on streaming video services. In this model of consideration, you can reverse engineer it as well. Your coping mechanism or addiction is in response to a loss of your ideal to manage the pain of your shame. What victim conversations are you using to avoid responsibility for being the one that initiated the separation from your ideal? What entitlement is in place to keep you separated? That same entitlement convinces you that it is the ideal that casts you away and you will never be more than a victim of it. If you can identify your highest ideal, humble yourself, Deny your entitlement, use your language to make an effort for restoration, seek it, lean into it, begin to push away the structures you have in place to make you feel comfortable, justified, and distracted from your highest ideal. I promise you, something big will happen. 
It will occur to you that your ideal has heard you and forgiven you. It will restore you to itself and you will see how the context of your life heals and thrives. Take a good look. What is your highest ideal? Start there. Please go to ericreilly.com and check out my thank you for your support page to participate financially in my life. Thank you very much.